0: So good to be here with you again. Wasn't worship awesome tonight? So good, just so thankful for our team and just for the spirit of worship that God's continuing to uh, to grow in us as a church. But if we haven't met yet, my name's Michael and I'm one of the pastors here And uh, we're going to go into our time of teaching, and so uh, Christy may have mentioned this, but if not, uh, inside your program is a green and white message note sheet for those of you here on campus. Uh, For those of you who are joining us online, depending on your formats, either at the top or the bottom of your screen, you can download the message notes in whatever format you you prefer, but they'll be super helpful uh, for following along. So if you guys are ready to go, I'm ready to jump in. You guys ready to go? Okay, Let's pray. So Father, we're just so thankful to be here in your house and under your authority and under the authority of your Word uh, in the power of your spirit through the new life we have in Christ and we, we come as your sons and daughters who have been adopted into your family and and you call us your children and so lord we, we come today to learn from you what it looks like to follow you, what it looks like to listen and follow the vision the values, the voice of Christ, and not the vision and values and the voices of our culture. And so we come today as just a very important topic of your word and and the, the role that your word plays in our life. I pray that you would be writing your law on our hearts. You'd be speaking with great authority and power. You'd be challenging us. You'd be calling us on to a deeper pursuit. Lord, I think of the psalmist who says, I run in the path of your commands for you have set my heart free. And so, Lord, we believe that. We believe that your word is a path to life. We want to run in the path of your command. So may today, may this be part of that journey for us, where you open our eyes in a new way to the beauty and the power and the righteousness, the goodness, the truth of your word, and a way that impacts us for the rest of our lives. And we pray this in Jesus' name. And everyone said, Amen. amen. Well, our story starts today at the foot of a mountain in the middle of the desert, and uh, they've been on this journey now for about three months, and there's no question that it has been the most exciting journey any of them have ever been on, but in spite of that, there's a growing, growing restlessness in the crowd, And the reason is their fearless leader who has led them so well the last few months has disappeared. And in fact, he's been gone now for over a month, and the last time they saw him, he's headed into harm's way. And so they're becoming restless. In fact, a rebellion is starting to brew. So in his absence, he put his second-in-command in charge, and and this leader has done all he can to pour oil on the water, to calm their fears, to give them perspective, to keep hope alive, but, but he knows it's not working. And deep inside, he senses that unless he does something quick, that a full-scale rebellion may erupt. And so under the pressure of that decision, he makes the worst decision of his life, and the one that's gonna lead to flat-out disaster. Well, today, we are continuing this series that we've been in for a long time called Christ, Culture, and the Cross. And uh, for those of you who are new to Rocky Peak, and I know every week uh, we have new people coming, whether it's here on campus or joining us online, uh, this is uh, what this series is about it's an in depth study of a letter from one of the key leaders of the early movement of Jesus. Uh, we know him as Paul or the Apostle Paul. And he's writing to a group of Christ followers that he led to the Lord about three years before in a very important Roman city uh, in the southern part of Greece, a city by the name of Corinth. And so we call this letter the letter of 1 Corinthians. Now, if you've been with us for the last month, you know that about four weeks we entered in, uh, ago, we entered into a new section of the letter that starts at chapter 8 and goes through chapter 10. And the topic on the table is, is the Corinthians have written to Paul, who's about 350 miles away, and they've asked him a series of questions. And one of the questions has to do was, what does it look like to follow Jesus in the midst of a culture that's thoroughly pagan? Where the worship of the gods is woven into the fabric of everyday life. And specifically, they want to they have some questions about: is it okay to eat meat that has been sacrificed to the gods in one of the local pagan temples and then resold in the market? Is it okay to eat this meat uh, if it's been dedicated to the gods? If we go to a friend's house and they they, they service this meat. There are some who are even uh, asking the question: Is it okay for us to continue to go to the pagan temples and participate in some of these uh, uh, celebrations that happen there, that involve pagan rituals? Uh, because, because this is where a lot of the things happen and cultural events of the city happen. And so, um, Paul is going today. We're breaking into the final chapter. This three chapter section. And Paul is gonna issue some of his sternest warnings yet uh, to this church about the tremendous danger they're in because they're playing fast and loose with idolatry and the immorality that goes with it. And so if you have your Bibles, you have your apps, let's go ahead and open up and turn to uh, chapter 10 of 1 Corinthians. There in your note sheet you have a section called Christ, Culture, and the Cross the disaster in the desert. Now, before we jump in, let's let's set this up. There's one big picture lesson that Paul wants to teach them today. And uh, if you want to write it down now, you want to wait till later, I'm sure you'll hear it more than once. But the big picture lesson is, a good start doesn't guarantee a happy ending. And to illustrate that very important spiritual principle, Paul is gonna use the nation of Israel as an example. So he's gonna go back to the start of their story, back to where God, through this amazing display of power, uh, rescues them from slavery in Egypt with Moses. You remember the account of how he led them through the Red Sea, almost like a baptism, if you will. He led them through the, 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 the Red Sea, destroyed the Egyptian army, and then you remember how he led them with a cloud by day and the fire by night kind of representing his presence. And you remember that when they, they ran out of food, he provided supernatural food, spiritual food. He provided manna for them in the wilderness. And when they ran out of water, remember he brought, more than once, he brought water from a rock for them. Do you remember, that? Do you remember all this? So Paul's gonna go back and his story is gonna be, hey, look how, look how amazing their story started And all but two of them died in the wilderness without going into the promised land. Corinthians, wake up here. You've come to Jesus. You've experienced this powerful move of the Holy Spirit. You've received the gifts of the Spirit. You too eat spiritual food, the communion of Jesus. You too drink spiritual, the spiritual drink. As we celebrate communion, and you seem to think that just because you came off to a good start, you're going to finish well? You are playing with fire, and you are in great spiritual danger. So be careful, because lest you think that you stand, you fall. You ready? And so let's see what he says. But I got way ahead of myself there. All right. (laughs) That's what's come, like, 15 minutes from now. It's like, it's just too good to wait. It's just too good to wait. Let's give you the trailer first, right? All right. So so in verse 1, he says, For I do not want you to be ignorant of the fact, brothers and sisters, that our ancestors, talking about the nation of Israel, our ancestors were all under the cloud. Remember the cloud of his presence? They were all under the cloud, and they were all passed through the sea, the Red Sea. They all experienced this amazing act of salvation. And in a sense, they were all like baptized into Moses. You know, just like we get baptized into Christ. And and they were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. And they all ate the same spiritual food, this manna, and they drank the same spiritual drink. For they, they drank from the spiritual rock that accompanied them, and that rock was whom? Christ. This is really interesting. Twice in this passage, we're not going to go into great detail, but twice in this passage, Paul is going to refer to Christ being with Israel in the wilderness, the pre-existent Son of God actually there with the nation. And so he said, to catch and I want you to underline this verse. There's a couple of verses that are going to be extremely important. Today. This is the first one. Now, these things that we just talked about, they occurred as examples to keep us from setting our hearts on evil things they did. Right. Right? So he says, hey, these stories from the life of Israel that the reason that God has recorded them in scripture, and we'll get to this later on and to say it even more plainly, the reason God has included these stories in scripture is so so we who've come to Christ, so that we will learn from their example. And now what he's gonna do is he's gonna give them four specific examples of the rebellion of Israel during the 40 years of wandering in the desert, all right? So he's gonna give them four examples. Now, as we go through these, I want you to notice, because this will become important later, I want you to notice how cryptic these references are. In other words, they're very brief, they go by. Chances are, if we just read them, most of us in this room would go, what in the world is he talking about? But he's referring to, he's referring to four specific examples recorded in the Old Testament law in numbers and so on, uh, of times that Israel rebelled. In spite of their great start, they rebelled against God with idolatry or grumbling or immorality. And as a result, uh, they experienced the judgment of God and spiritual disaster, right? So the point is they started strong, but these same people uh, at different times rebelled against God and they were, their bodies were left strewn in the desert. A good start doesn't guarantee a happy ending, right? So as we go through these four, I will briefly tell you what these four events and all references for these four events are on your note sheet if you want to read them this week on your own. So the first one comes in verse 7. Okay, so let's read 6 again. Now, these things occurred as examples to keep us from setting our hearts on evil things as they did, right? So now he's gonna give us four specific examples. Example number one, this comes from Exodus 32. He says, do not be idolaters. Now remember, that's the topic on the table, idolatry in Corinth. He says, do not be idolaters as some of them were, as it's written, and he quotes from Exodus 32, the people sat down to eat, and drink, and they got up and indulged in revelry. So let's go back in time. This takes us back to the story we started the day with about this group that they've been on the road for three months, this amazing journey, but their leader has disappeared. He's been gone for over a month. They're not sure what happened to him, and they're starting to rebel. And so the second in command makes this horrible decision. This is my version of the story of Israel. They come out of bondage in Egypt under Moses. They come through the Red Sea. They travel for three months uh, to Mount Sinai. And on that journey, God provides water from the rock. He provides the manna and so on. So they see the power of God. They get to Mount Sinai, and at Mount Sinai, God shows up in this amazing display of power, fire, lightning, smoke on the mountain, earthquake and uh, he actually speaks out loud to the whole nation it's terrifying and basically he he makes an offer he offers that they he will enter into relationship with them we call this relationship a covenant much like marriage is a covenant and his offer was if you want i will be your god and you will be my people And so they respond to this by saying, I do. Basically, God's proposing, and they say, I do. And of course, as in any important relationship or covenant, there are terms of kind of rules of the relationship. Like when you get married, one of the rules is forsaking all others, right? There's certain rules of of marriage. (laughs) Well, I don't know about today, but anyway, (laughs) you know what I'm saying. And, and so, uh, in the same way, God gives them these ten basic rules. We call them in, in Hebrew; it's called the Ten Words. We call it the Ten Commandments. And these, remember, Jesus said all of these can be summarized in two basic. Uh commandments of loving God with all your heart and loving your neighbor as yourself. And so he gives them these beautiful commandments to guide their new community, to, to live a life of love with God and with one another. And of course, you remember the very first two is no other gods. This is an exclusive relationship like marriage. Uh, and secondly, uh, that you are to uh, no, n- never try to represent God with an idol because any representation will limit him and misrepresent him right so so, okay, so, so then Moses, after this, uh, they say, I do, Moses goes up on the mountain for about a month and a half, about 40 days, to get the fine print of this relationship, and while he's gone, the people are getting restless. So remember, the last time they saw him, he's going up into the fire and smoke in this terrifying scene, and they're getting restless, and they're, they're like, hey, they come to Aaron, his second in control, his brother and, and brother, and they say, hey, Aaron, hey, make us some gods to lead us the rest of Way on this journey, and so Aaron's feeling the pressure of revolt, so he caves. They build the golden calf, and they begin to worship. And this is the reference: they they rise up, they begin to play, uh, the revelry, probably sexual orgy is being is what is happening here, which often goes on in the worship of idols in, in pagan times, right? And so so this is the first time, right? So when when Moses comes down, God brings judgment on the people, and the bottom line is 3,000 people lose their life. And Paul's point is these are the same 3,000 that started so strong just three months ago. And so he says in verse seven, do not be idolaters as some of them were. As it's written, the people sat down to eat and drink and got up to indulge in revelry. So that's example number one. Example number two, Example number two comes not from the beginning of their relationship with God, but at the very end. So at the end of the 40 years in the wilderness, they're camped uh, on the east side of the Jordan River in an area called Moab, and, and they enter into relationship with the Moabites, which they're not supposed to do, and the Moabite women say, why don't you come and worship our gods? Part of our worship is we have sex. And they say, yeah, that sounds good to us. And so they begin to enter into worship of the Moabite gods and actually having sexual immorality. And as, as a result of this, again, the judgment of God comes. Over 20,000 people die. And again, these are four illustrations of the same thing, just different sins involved. And so the next next verse says, this is from Numbers 25. He says, we should not commit sexual immorality as some of them did. So notice he focused uh, first on idolatry. Now he's focusing on the immorality part. We should not commit sexual immorality as some of them did. And in one day, 23,000 of them died. The third example comes from Numbers 21. This time, it's not the immorality. It's not the idolatry. It's grumbling against God, grumbling against Moses. They're not happy. They're out of food again. They're out of water. And the rebellion is is beginning to erupt. And so um, he says in verse 9, he said, we should not test Christ as some of them did. Notice how he says Christ... We should not test Christ as some of them did. This is in Numbers 21, and were killed by snakes. So, this is that scene where God releases vipers in. You remember, they're, they're, they're biting Jesus, talked about this as, as the snake must be raised up on a pole uh, so the Son of Man would. So, it's that thing, okay? And then the fourth example comes, we're not sure from where, likely Numbers 11, but we're not sure because they grumbled all the time. But he said, <laughs> and do not grumble. Um, as so so, so the, the, the third one, they were testing the Lord's patience, right? This one, now they're grumbling, as some of them did, and they were killed by a destroying angel. And this, if it's Numbers 11, it's a scene where they're, they're grumbling against God against the lack of variety in their diet. And uh, so God sends quail, and then they handle it really poorly, and it ends up in another judgment. Okay, so these four examples of the type of sin that Paul is saying, hey, you don't want to be committing this sin in court. You don't want to be worshiping idols. You don't want to be participating in sexual immorality. You don't want to be testing Jesus' patience with how bad you can be. You don't be grumbling against me, Paul, and the different leaders in grumbling. He says, bad things are going to happen. A good start doesn't guarantee a good finish. And so look what he says. And this is the next verse I want you to underline. He says, these things happen to them As examples, and catch this, they were written down as warnings for us on whom the culmination of the ages has come. And Paul is saying several things here. he says, hey, these events that we read in the Hebrew scriptures, they're examples for us, and God caused them, inspired them to be written down in his word. And he said, and and these events that happened back then were written for us. Now that Jesus has come, they're written to teach us um, on whom the culmination of the ages. In other words, this story of our race that God is telling us has early chapters and it has later chapters. And the story of Israel is part of the earlier chapters. We're living after the time of Messiah in some of the later chapters, the culmination of the ages. And then look what he says next. He says, so here's his point. If you think you're standing firm, Corinthians, you think you're safe, be careful that you don't fall like they did. All right, a good start doesn't guarantee a happy ending. All right, so we're gonna stop there for today. But well, what I want to do is come back, and I want to highlight two really important principles that flow out of this passage for our lives as followers of Jesus here today, the 21st century, and then come back at the end and kind of apply it like one key question for our life. And so here we go. So there in your note sheet, uh, Christ's culture and the cross, two key lessons. And so here's lesson number one. Lesson number one is that Israel's story is our story. Israel's story is our story. You know, sometimes in Christian circles today, we have a a tendency to neglect the story of Israel in the Old Testament. Hey, we're New Testament believers. Why do we need their story? Um, It doesn't apply to us today. But what we see today is what a huge mistake (laughs) that the whole reason that we have this story, part of the reason for that, is for us who'd come after the time of Jesus. And, and I think what we often don't understand, what we need to understand, the story that God is telling in the Bible is a unified story from beginning to end. And when we don't understand the story of Israel, It's like walking into a movie theater for a movie you've never seen, you know what's gonna happen, walking in two-thirds into the movie and trying to make sense of what's happening. And my guess is if we did that, we could figure out most of what's happening or a lot of what's happening, but we would miss the nuance, we would miss the depth of the story, the richness of the story, And we may even make some really wrong conclusions, some wrong guesses, trying to piece it together that really are off just because we miss the context. And so so Paul is reminding the Corinthians that, hey, Israel's story is your story. Now, I want to build on that. And I want to highlight something that would have been obvious to the Corinthians that's not obvious to us sitting here today. And to get at this, I wanna go back to how he starts the story, the very first verse, there on your note sheet. He says, Paul says, I don't want you to be ignorant of this fact, brothers and sisters, that our, what's the next word? Ancestors. Okay, underline that, our ancestors. So in the Greek, that word is literally our fathers. So it could be translated like our fathers or our forefathers, all right? So he says, I don't want you to be ignorant of the fact, brothers and sisters, that our fathers, our forefathers, were all under the cloud and they passed through the sea. Now you say, well, what's so amazing about that? Well, most of the church of Corinth wasn't Jewish. They're Gentiles. And you say, well, how do you know that? Well, just read through the issues they're dealing with. Jews don't deal with issues with uh, idolatry, Jews who come to Jesus, they don't have the issue. They don't go to pagan temples. Jews who go to, uh, who, who come to Jesus, they don't have the issue of hey, sexual immorality is a not, is is a, 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 is like a, a big deal. You can't you can't live in. Se-. They already know that. This is how they were raised. As you look through, scholars are unanimous that the vast majority of the believers in the Church of Corinth were not Jewish. And yet Paul says, I don't want you to be ignorant of the fact, brothers and sisters, that our fathers, what are you talking about, Paul? They're not our fathers. They're not our forefathers. And Paul says, oh, yes, you are. Because now that you've come to Jesus, and he talks about this in Romans chapter 11, he says, as Gentiles, you have been grafted into the olive tree of God's Israel. And he says, so, so now if anyone is in Christ, there is no Jew or Gentile or God's people. But he says in Galatians 6, as Gentiles, you're part of the, here's what he says, the true Israel of God. And what this means, if you're a follower of Jesus, you're part of the true Israel of God. And what that means is all of these stories from Israel are your stories. They're the stories of your forefathers, the story of Abraham, the story of Isaac, the story of Jacob, the story of Moses, the story of the 12 tribes, the story of Joshua, the story of Gideon, the story of David, the prophets. There are stories. And what that means, he says, you need to know their story if you're going to walk well with God today. Are you with me? The story of Israel is our story. And this leads to number two. Number two is that Israel's scriptures are our scriptures, So, so often in Christian circles, we tend to neglect the writings of the Hebrew scriptures, the Hebrew Bible, what we would call today as Christians, the Old Testament, because we, we feel like, well, they don't really apply to us anymore. And of course, in some sense, in one sense, this is true. We're told, for example, by the Apostle Paul in Galatians that the the law, the Old Testament law, it was our guardian or our tutor to lead us to Christ. And so the Old Testament laws, to a large degree, had an expiration date on them when they were issued. You know how you have expiration date on the milk? (laughs) Well, the law of God had an expiration date. And the expiration date was the coming of Messiah. And so when when Messiah comes, so there's a lot of those laws that uh, think of circumcision, uh, eating kosher, uh, Sabbath rules, uh, all the festivals, um, the priesthood, uh, the sacrifices. Yeah, these were all fulfilled when Messiah came. And so, so, yes, in that sense, those things no longer apply. But what I want you to catch is if you look at the New Testament writers and how they use the Old Testament, they see the Old Testament very much as their Bible. And they often quote the principles in that, even in the law, as applying for us today. Like, let me give you two or three examples we've seen in this letter. Some of you will remember this. Back in chapter 5, there was this issue where a man in Corinth was sleeping with his stepmother. You remember that? And the church wasn't doing anything. And Paul says, what are you thinking? For followers of Jesus, sexual purity is a non-negotiable and if this man's not ready to repent, you have to kick him out of your church. He can't be part of your church. And I don't know if you remember how Paul ended that letter. He says, What business is it of mine to judge non believers? That's the Lord's job, but aren't you not to judge those within your church? And he says, quote from Deuteronomy, expel the wicked man among you. He's quoting from Deuteronomy to support his teaching. We saw this in chapter 9. Do you remember where Paul was talking about as an apostle of Jesus, that he has the right to be financially supported? And do you remember he quoted from Deuteronomy, he said, hey, am I just saying this from, doesn't the law say this? And he says, remember what the law says is that don't muzzle the ox that treads out the grave. And now here today we have another example, where he says, hey, don't think that a good start guarantees a happy ending. Look at the story of Israel. So the New Testament writers are always like, what I want you to catch is that the Bible that Jesus read was what we call the Old Testament. The The Bible that Jesus read, that he memorized, that he quoted to Satan, that he lived his life, that was his highest authority, it was the Old Testament. And what I want you to catch is whether it's for Paul, whether it's for Jesus, whether it's for the early church, the scriptures were their highest authority. Let me give you just a couple examples. In Matthew 5, you know, Jesus is just launching his ministry, and it seems like there are some who are questioning his Kind of his view of scripture, because his teaching was so different from the religious leaders, it was raising questions. Well, do you really, do you really believe the Bible is the word? And look, and so Jesus responds to this, and he says, "Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets." So those are that's the way you'd often talk about the whole Old Testament. They'd say the law and the prophets. He said, "I have not come to abolish them, but what? To To fulfill them." For truly I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter nor the least stroke of the pen will by, will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Right? Later on in his ministry, Jesus is having an argument with the religious leaders. And to, to support the point he was making, he quoted from the Psalms, from Psalm 82. And then he just throws in this parenthetical statement, and I want you to see it. There in your notes here in John chapter 10, he quotes from Psalm 82, and then he says, "'And scripture cannot be," what? Broken. Broken. that he he and the religious leaders disagreed about a lot of things, but not over the authority of scripture. He says, uh, hey, this is what it says, and you and I both know this, the scripture can't be broken, right? Look what the apostle Paul says. In Romans chapter three, Paul is, is, is asking the question, well, if both Jews and Gentiles are equally before God sinners and need to be saved by faith, then, then what advantage is there at all in being a Jew? And this is, his, 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 this is what he says next. He says, well, first of all, actually what he says there before this verse comes up, he says, well, there's many advantages. As much, he said, but first of all, The Jews have been entrusted with what? The very words of God. God. And here's what I want you to catch, whether it was Jesus or whether it's Paul, the other apostles, the early church, this is how they see Scripture, as the very words of God that cannot be broken and must be fulfilled, the highest authority that Jesus would never think Of going against the word. Now, before we leave this point, I wanna point out one thing that's really interesting to me. Do you remember when we went through this passage and I said, I'm gonna give you four, Paul's gonna give four illustrations, four times in Israel's history in the wilderness, the 40 years, when they rebelled against God? And I said, and and you remember I said, and he's gonna be really cryptic about this. Would you agree with me on that? Yes. You read through? And so, so when, I was, when I was going over it with you, I knew that as a church, I could not just read these and you'd go, oh yeah, that was that time. Oh, that was that time. Oh, that was that time. Oh, Numbers 25, Numbers 21. Oh, Numbers 11, Exodus 32. Like I knew that. I knew, if we, I, I knew I had to slow down. I had to explain what these references were, where they were, and what in the world's going on. And otherwise, we would be like, what's he talking about? Okay? What I want you to notice, when Paul's writing to the Corinthians, who are mostly pagans, they've come out of, they're Gentiles, they didn't grow up in synagogue, they didn't grow up learning the Bible, they've only known Jesus for three years, and yet he assumed they would know exactly what he's talking about. All right, just hold on to that one, all right? Okay. So, the, the verse there on your note sheet again, First Corinthians ten 11. let's just kind of wrap this part with that. So these things happened to them as examples, and they were what? Written. They were written down. God caused these examples, he just gave to be written down as warnings for us, on whom the culmination of the ages has come. These things that happened before Jesus were written down for us who came after Jesus to teach us how to follow Jesus, okay? Now, so I have a question for you, and you may have to search your heart on this. In fact, you may even lie to yourself at first. (laughs) and then like, be more honest as we go along. But fortunately, I can't see your heart, so neither can your, neither the person next to you. So, so I want you to think about this. This is an extremely important. This may be one of the most important questions we ask in this whole series. And I'll explain why as we go through. It's a very simple question. It goes like this, what are the scriptures to you? What was written? No, no, of course, for for of course, for, for Paul and Jesus, when they're talking about the scriptures, they're talking about what we call the Old Testament, right? Now, as, as New Testament, as people after Jesus, and right, that we have not only the Old Testament, we have the New Testament that was uh, written by the apostles who are authorized by Jesus with his authority to speak for him, just like the prophets in the Old Testament were authorized by God to speak for him. So we have, the whole, we have the whole book, right? So the question is, so what, what are the scriptures to you? So what we've seen today is that for Jesus, for Paul, for the early church, the scriptures are the very words of God. They speak with his authority, their ultimate authority. And then, of course, Paul kind of, kind of lays out this, this summary um, in a very, in a classic passage, I'm sure many of you read before, there in your note sheet, from 2 Timothy chapter three. He's writing to the young protege, Pastor Timothy, and he says, Timothy, he says, all scripture, this is kind of, this would be the view, the view of Jesus, the view of Paul, the view of the early church. He says, all scripture is God-breathed, like it's supernatural. It, it's kind of, it's like it comes through the personality of the individual writers but the, the thoughts that are being communicated are coming from the Lord. They're being breathed. So all scripture is God-breathed, and it's useful for teaching, to teach you the truth about who God is and who we are and the path to life and so on. It's, it's, it's helpful for rebuking when, when we get out of line. It's helping for correcting when we have certain things wrong. And it's for training in righteousness, it's kind of like, a, like an athlete in training. It trains us how to live the right way so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped, strengthened for every good work. So that, that's kind of the view of Jesus, the view of Paul, the view of the early church, right? And so the question, so, so that's what the scripture is to them. The question is, what is this book to you? And I think it's one of the most important questions of our day. Because what we've seen this whole series, this, let's just review this, that the church at Corinth, they, they came to Jesus through this mighty work of the Holy Spirit in their life, right? And, and they came to him a great, they had a, a powerful conversion, they received the gift of the Holy Spirit, this wide array of spiritual gifts. So they got off to this great start. But what we've seen throughout the series is that after Paul left, they began drifting back and they began listening to the vision, the values, the voices of their culture instead of Christ. That's what right? so we've seen all the way through. And I see a very similar dynamic in our culture today. A very similar temptation in our culture today. That's we are living in a culture that's increasingly hostile to the gospel. We're gonna do a series on this at the beginning of the year. And we're, we're living in a culture that's increasingly hostile to a biblical worldview. And... We're going, we're living in a culture that's increasingly hostile to the truth claims of scripture. And we see it in all kinds of ways. We see it who is who is God? And how does a relationship with God work? And what is the path to human flourishing? And why are we here as a race? And how do we make those decisions? And we, we, see, it, we see it rising up at all types of, of topics, don't we? Human sexuality, same-sex relationship, gender ideology, human life issues, abortion, infanticide, euthanasia. We see it rising up in injustice issues, right? Social justice versus biblical justice, two very different things with very different worldviews behind those two things. And there is tremendous pressure on you and I to capitulate and to go with culture instead of Christ. And here's the point to a very large degree, I believe that what you believe about scripture will determine your spiritual future. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, what, what we believe about scripture will determine our spiritual future. I would say that if you could tell me your view of scripture. I could tell you the level of danger you're in. And what's really interesting, men and women, is that this pressure is coming at us not only from the culture, but often from within the church itself. I I don't know. This, by the way, this is nothing new. (laughs) If you read the New Testament... Paul's usually responding to things that are rising up in the churches, right? It's not like the culture at large has a different view on Jesus. They don't care about Jesus that when he was around, you know, when Paul was teaching. Um, but, like, let me give you an example. Like, I don't know if you're familiar with a movement, kind of a loosely, loosely defined movement that's called progressive Christianity. Just the very name should cause you pause, it's often associated with the term called deconstructionism. Now, Mahancha, some of you are like very aware, some of you unaware, but this movement at, a, at its core is, a, is challenging historic, biblical, orthodox Christianity, the teachings. And at the core of the issue is how do you see scripture? And sometimes the leaders of this movement, the writers and authors and pastors, sometimes they'll be very honest about this. And they'll say, yeah, we don't believe that scripture is the the very words of God. We believe that scripture is uh, a bunch of religious writings from people from the nation of Israel uh, and from the early church, and so it's kind of a description of what they believed about God. I and mean, we, we just need to kind of weigh it as to what we agree with and what we don't. But then there's others within the movement that will use the same language. They will say, "We believe Scripture is authoritative. We believe it's inspired but they're using a different dictionary. And what they mean by inspired or authoritative is something very different than Jesus and Paul in the early church meant by these terms. And whichever way it goes, either, either types of leaders, the argument will often go like this. And we'll say, well, this is what the historic church Christians have already, always believed, always taught about these hot topic, hot button social issues. But if you really understood the culture of the time when it was written, if you understood the context in which it was written, if you understood the Hebrew or the Greek, that's not what it's saying. We've misunderstood it all these years. And what it's actually saying just crazy, happens to be what is politically correct today. (laughs) Crazy. Isn't that amazing? And men and women, this is gonna be very attractive to many of us. Because if we can redefine our Christianity so that it fits with culture, we can avoid being canceled. And we can avoid persecution. And so there'll be a tremendous pull for you to change what you believe and to change your view of scripture or to change what the church and has always taught based on scripture in order to fit in with culture. The exact same issue the Corinthians were dealing with. And what I want you to catch is what the Apostle Paul is saying. He says, be careful. If you think you're standing firm, because some of you are getting close to fall, and your eternal destiny is at stake, a good start doesn't guarantee a happy ending. So I have one more question for you. This is a bonus question. It's not even on your, it's just, it's, uh, it's just like, uh, it's just a bonus. It's just a, it's a good day. Um, so let me, let me just set this up, all right? So let's say that you're here, right? And you say, no, I, I believe I'm with Jesus. I'm with Paul. I went to early church. I I believe the scripture are the very words of God. God has used it in my life. He's spoken to me. He's opened my eyes. I'm on board with this. I believe, I believe that this is the very words of God. Then the question I have is, okay, so how well do you know it? You just told me that you believe it. You believe it's a path to life. You believe it's a source of all truth. Not all truth, I'm not excited. God's given us a general revelation of the ways, but you believe it's the source of the most important truth about life, who God is, who we are, the path to life, what's right, what's wrong, what leads to fulfillment, and freedom. You just told me that you believe that. And so then the question would be, well then, then how well do you know it? And how much time and energy are you spending learning it and memorizing it and meditating on it? Because Jesus said, if you hold on to my commands, then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. it doesn't really matter if this is the path to life and we don't know what it says. We might as well not believe it. as to say we believe it, but not know it. Amen? Let's pray. So Lord, we come today and I say, Lord, for me and my house, for me and my house, Lord, we will stand on your word. And we love your word, God. I just love your word. It's just so beautiful. It's so powerful. It just brings life. Lord, that passage, I run in the path of your commands, for you've set my heart free. Lord, may Rocky Peak always be a place that honors your word, that embraces your word. May this be a safe place for those who want to live by your word, that they would know that this is a place we're going to... We're going to come, we're going to, we're going to hold on to it, we're going to embrace it, we're going to love it, we're going to memorize it, we're going to meditate on it because it sets us free. It is a path to life. And so, Lord, we pray that you would pour out your spirit upon this church. We would have clarity on the authority of your word, and not just clarity, but passion and hunger. Lord, you said, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Lord, may your word be to us like to Jeremiah. May your word be a hammer. May your word be that which prunes us, as Jesus, you said, that you are already clean because of my word. May your word be to us that which you wash us, as in Ephesians, by the washing of the word, your church was born. May your word be to me like honey, that I ate it and I was satisfied. God, we pray you pour out the Holy Spirit who inspired scripture. We pray you'd pour him out on our church and on our lives and awaken in us a hunger for you and your word. That we might be a true light in the midst of a dark place and in a world that's losing its mind that we would be a place of sanity and truth and beauty because we follow your word. As you said to Israel, you'll be such a wise people. What other other nation would there be that would be so wise because of the word that was given? May we be that. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.